0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah is like, I can't believe you would ever go to my writings after making jokes like that. But I will, Isaiah, if you're listening. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes to many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And now let's stand for the gospel reading, please, from Matthew chapter 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the sun, But the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood came, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Those are fun texts again. In Advent we celebrate. God's move toward us more than we celebrate anything else. Again, when I was growing up, it was always the emphasis was on how I was moving toward the Lord. How are you walking with the Lord? Are you moving toward him? Are you pursuing him? But the reality is this. No one can ever pursue God if God doesn't do something to their heart first to make them want to pursue him. And so it all begins with God's movement toward us. Our movement toward God is God's movement toward us. He's omnipresent. He's always coming towards us, always with us, always behind us and before us. Amen? So in Advent, we celebrate God with us in a world that tremendously feels like God is absent. Like we said, in Lent and Easter, we'll celebrate God for us. In Pentecost, we'll celebrate God in us. In ordinary time, we'll celebrate God through us. But right now, it's Advent And we celebrate God with us. I want us to get to Christmas being and learning to be the kinds of people who, not our arguments, not our apologetics, not our philosophical stances, but our very presence in the earth will let people know that God is with them. Who we are, more than what we say or do, will be the evidence that God is with them. I want your neighbors across the street and next to you know that because of you, they know God is with them. So what is a story that I thought of that reminds me of exactly what Advent is like? It is January 15th of 2016 and my wife was feeling a bit nauseous every day, especially in the morning. And this one this one day I had my coat on and I was getting ready to go to work and she said, like, I'm literally getting to the door and she's like, I'm going to take a pregnancy test. I like, All right, I'm not going to leave then. I'm not going to okay, bye. Like, I'm going to sit back down. I remember I was sitting on my chair in the living room and I'm like, okay, Bill, your next response is going to matter a lot for a very long period of time. So don't say anything dumb. And so she comes out of the bathroom and she says, we did it. And I'm like, what do we do? And she's like, "I'm pregnant." And I'm like, "Yes, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is fantastic." I take my coat off. Again, I'm not leaving for work at that point, right? And I'm like, "This is amazing." And she's like, "I know." And then I start to think like it's it's mid-January and she's about 4 weeks pregnant. And so that goes back to Christmas time cuz y- you know I love Christmas time, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> put a little eggnog in a cup, put Nat King Cole on in a Christmas tree, and Sophia shows up. That's how that works. <laughs> Don't ever tell Sophia that it will ruin Christmas, forever. Jacqueline's like, "Oh, I'm like, this is great. We're both crying. Oh my god, this is amazing." She's like, "Alright, I think I'm gonna go throw up now." I'm like, oh my god, you want me to hold your hair for you? Like, oh my god, she shuts that door, and I'm like, "Oh, oh man. <laughs> okay, we're okay. We're gonna be okay." And I get in the car, and like, I don't even remember driving to work. You ever have so much on your mind, like you went someplace far, and don't remember getting there? Like, I must have walked in to my job with that look on my face because my boss is like, they say hi, and you ever get so, you're you're so panicky when you hear the word hi, you feel like they said, how are you? (laughs) Hey, how's it going? I'm fine. Everything's fine. Everything's perfectly fine. My boss is like, no, it's not. Are you all right? And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just going to sit here a while. And I remember thinking, something happened. And because of that thing that happened definitively, we're now waiting for something even bigger than that to happen. That is exactly what Advent is. Stanley Hauerwas said it this way, Advent is the waiting made possible by the hope made real. Advent is the waiting made possible by the hope made real. So now we have the nine-month clock starting. And all of that waiting that we're now entering into, we now enter into this very specific time of waiting, but the waiting is made possible because of a hope that's actually made real. There is a pregnancy. Something did happen definitively, and that thing that happened definitively actually causes the waiting. And now you're waiting, but the surety of the possibility of what's coming is the fact that something actually did happen. So in the process of this waiting... Jacqueline, very physically, all of us that have ever gone through this process of, of waiting to have a baby emotionally, you start to expand. You start to grow. I have no excuse for this other than food, but my wife had a really good excuse for it. She was pregnant. And what's happening to her is she's growing because now she needs to grow so that her life isn't just the size for her. It now can include somebody else. That preaches. That preaches. I know Winter Storm Ezekiel is coming, and it's early. We had service super early, an hour early. But she's growing so that she can contain more than just herself. This is why the church consistently practices Advent, because we need to be the kind of people that together, not any one of us, but together together, We can become broader, we can enlarge so that we can fit more than just people who look like us or agree with us or or sing like us or worship like us. It is very important, you've heard me talk about it a lot, that not just our liturgical worship, but also our social networks and who worships with us. We want it all to look convergent, but we need to grow in our capacity to handle that because difference does make uncomfortable, but that's okay. We need to grow, and waiting is what helps us grow. We need to be able to experience more than one emotion at a time. That's called having emotional maturity. Jesus can stand at Lazarus's tomb and weep over the death that he's about to fix five minutes later. And so our question, because we're emotionally immature, is why would he take the time to weep over Lazarus, knowing that he's about to raise Lazarus, because we only understand one emotion at a time. But Jesus is the kind of person, and he's revealing that God is the kind of being that can both weep and celebrate at the same time. I think Paul said it this way, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn at the same time. And so waiting for anything, waiting for the promotion, waiting for a job, waiting for a baby, waiting for a spouse, waiting for tomorrow, waiting for work to end, any of these things, any, any of this waiting that we do, it enlarges us if we handle it properly. If we offer our waiting to God as an offering, he will respond by enlarging our capacities to handle multiple things. Waiting makes us hospitable. Work begins in our home. Work begins in our finances. Work begins in all the facets of our life, knowing a baby's coming. I just opened the Dietrich Bonhoeffer devotional, uh, God is in the Manger, and I've been using it for five years now. I actually saw a note in there that said, 2016, not enough money to buy everybody Christmas presents this year because of the baby. It's like almost like blaming her already. That year, I remember what we did all year long. What we did was we took pictures of all the people we would normally buy presents for. We took a picture uh, with them and the baby, and then at Christmas time we gave them those pictures. And there was a note that said, "This year we're going to celebrate that gift giving isn't what brings joy on Christmas." We're in a much different position, you know, a few years later, three years later than that year. But when you start to look at all the things that happen because of having a child, this is also what Advent is. The the world got pregnant with Jesus when he came the first time, and Jesus is going to deliver himself to the world ultimately one day. What are we arranging? How are we setting up the house now knowing that that day is coming? Advent itself is about the second coming of Jesus. This is very important. The text you heard in Matthew is Jesus talking about his return. The thief in the night text. How many saw the movie Left Behind? I'm sorry. How many saw the new one that Nick Cage was in? Why would he ever? That's where that text comes from. Obviously a terrible text, but that's for a whole other sermon. Advent is about the second coming of Jesus, Christmas is about the baby being born, but Advent is the preparation for Christmas, and in Advent, we don't pretend Jesus was never born. That's a misconception. What we do is we learn about the Jesus who's returning first, so that when we get to the texts about him being born, we don't see the baby first, because as Fleming Rutledge said, if you see the baby first, you'll never let him get to Good Friday. You'll never let him get to the cross. Too cute. Ooh, goo goo ga Like, way too cute. Jesus is far too cute on Christmas. But when you know, when you've already celebrated the prophecies, when you've already celebrated the fact that he died and now is risen and now is coming back as the lion and the lamb, the one who stands as though slain but yet alive, when you realize that that's the Messiah coming back, then when you see him in the manger, you say, what a humble God we have Because if that baby is the risen returning Messiah and his power is expressed by becoming an infant, how are we handling the power and influence we have? Are we willing to be helpless or do we fight all day long in self-preservation to exert our power? Jesus as a baby or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, God in the manger is God showing us his method This is how power is expressed in helplessness. Then he'll heal people, and you'll think, now he's powerful, and then he'll go to the cross. And then he'll raise, and you'll say, now he's powerful, and then he'll disappear and say, I'm coming back, and I'm not telling you when. He's always expressing his power in some type of vulnerability. It's a lesson that is very difficult to learn, and Advent teaches it to us. So, very quickly, there are three Advents during Advent that we celebrate. The first advent is when you turn your Bible from Malachi to Matthew. You turn 450 pages of history, 450 years of history in one turn of the page. You end with the prophecy that when I return, I'm going to restore children to their parents and parents to their children. That is the final prophecy of the Old Testament. And then you turn and you hear the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The first advent is Isaiah saying to exiles, saying to those who are oppressed, saying to those who are the victims of injustice, saying to those who are marginalized and the least of these and taken out of their homeland and enslaved, saying to those people, they are the bearers of the gospel's first prediction, slaves, slaves cast-asides, minorities in the land that they're in, they are the bearers of the first prophecies of the gospel. Let's not forget that. And it's to them that Isaiah says, one day, not only is God going to restore this, But he's going to teach a new way of life. That always gets lost in the Isaiah prophecies. We overemphasize they'll come to Mount Zion. We overemphasize they'll beat their swords into plowshares. But it says when he comes, he will teach them a new way. And it says they will learn war no more. It won't instantly stop, but they're gonna learn a new way of life. That's the first prophecy. That launches the first advent, that launches the first season of waiting is saying that God is going to come and do something about this. And so what we have is we have Jesus is the reason himself why we wait. The prophecy to slaves 450 years before Jesus is the prophecy of the Messiah. Jesus is the reason why we wait in the first place. No waiting happens apart from Christ. you'll learn a new way. You'll take your swords and beat them into plowshares. Now, for a people who thank the Lord, and we should be thankful, as Elder Paul said, every day that we really ultimately, most of us, don't understand the significance of needing to beat a weapon into a gardening tool. Some of us come from different places where that is a reality, and you can imagine the significance and the freedom of hearing one day weapons that kill will turn into tools that cultivate. But the question I have for us here is, what if the sword that needs to be beaten into a plowshare is our words? What if for us who live in relatively comfortable environments, not war-torn environments, what if... Our words are the swords that need to be beaten into plowshares. What would that look like? How would our speech change? I have no idea. I'm asking you. Like I was hoping you would have. That's the first Advent. The next Advent we celebrate is the third Advent. The third Advent is the return of Jesus. So the first Advent is... The prophet saying, a Messiah is going to come that is not only going to deliver you from slavery, but teach a new way of life. It's not just about deliverance. It's about becoming the kind of people who don't get back into the need for deliverance again. Does that make sense? It's not just delivering you from slavery. It's becoming the kind of culture whose goodness doesn't even tolerate that kind of action in the first place. But then he comes... And he says, Jesus says, I'm the one you've been waiting for, and I'm leaving again. But I'll be back. And when I come back, I'm bringing my full justice with me. So Jesus is why we wait. And Jesus is also who we're waiting for. He's the reason why we wait. And he's also the one we're waiting for. We celebrate the first advent Because without it, we don't have a third Advent to celebrate. Without the birth of Christ, obviously, we're not celebrating his return. So we have to join them in the anticipation of the first Advent to understand what the second coming is going to be like. And Jesus says, when I come back, for some of you, it's going to feel like a thief in the night. Now, I just want to open up a can of worms and then I'm going to step away with it just to be obnoxious. Is that okay? Like, I just want to say a bunch of things that's going to give you a whole bunch of questions, and then I'm not going to answer them for months and months and months until we get back to it again. But here's the thing I don't really think Jesus is the thief in the night that we've said he was. Do thieves steal? Do they break in? Do they bring destruction? Does Jesus do that? I believe Jesus is the one who said the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I'd never heard of a robber who breaks into somebody's house to give them life and life more abundantly. I broke in, I'm really sorry, but I gave you a new TV, right? Like this, this isn't generally what happens, Jesus is saying that upon my return, I'm going to be defeating death. Death is an enemy. That if you're not vigilant, evil is going to come ahead of my day and try to rob your awareness that my day is coming. Because here's the thing Jesus is a thief in the night, but he's not a thief in the night to us, he's a thief in the night to death. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to rob death, and death isn't going to be ready for it. That's why Paul will say later, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And death's response is, I didn't realize he came and stole it. So Jesus doesn't tell us when he's coming back for this exact reason. If he told us when he was coming back, we would be lazy until just before he came back, just like when I tell Jacqueline I'll have the house cleaned by the time she comes back. She's been running around for the Christmas gala like crazy. I was, me and Sophia were hanging out the other day. And I said, when you get back, everything will be nice. And she said, oh, that would be so helpful. And I said, well, when are you coming back? And realized all the parables, like when the master of the house leaves. So she says, I'm coming back at 11. So at 10:45 I'm like Sophia put your sneakers on we got to clean. Here's here's I'm handing her chemicals I'm like you just spray these on the ground wash them you have this thing. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding mostly. I'm just kidding. If we knew when he was coming back we would stay on our spiritual couch and eat spiritual potato chips and be spiritually lazy until just before. And in that lethargy, in that laxity, in that laziness, evil and temptation and the world, the flesh and the devil break right in and steal. So he doesn't tell us when he's coming so that we stay vigilant. So that we don't allow our house to get broken into prior to the day of his return. And what does he say in the text is the temptation? As in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man returns, that they'll be eating and drinking and marrying and be given in marriage. He says all of their blessings, the minute blessings are spent and ease and contentment and satisfaction are celebrated, that is when they've been duped by the enemy the most. Because that's when they stop needing hope. That's when they stop needing something more that's when they stop hoping for something better than this. Is when we get so comfortable with what we have that we feel like hope is for other people. It's when we get so comfortable in our blessings that we feel like hope is something we're supposed to give as word, but not in deed or action to other people. What robs us of hope is satisfaction in this life. And I know I'm one of the most negative pastors on the face of the earth. But hopefully one day we realize I'm right. If it turns out I'm wrong, I sincerely apologize. (laughs) But if you're satisfied now, you have to ask yourself, how much of the world am I ignoring to be satisfied now? And what does it say about me that we still need to have Christmas galas? to return people who were sex trafficked. And I'm running around talking about how satisfied I am because I have stuff. I know we decorate for Christmas. It's supposed to be happier than this. But Jesus shows up in a world that is severely broken. And as the church, we are his body and we still need to be able to know and interpret the world's brokenness. Allow yourself to enjoy the holidays. Feel all the feels. I just told you before about how much I love the holidays. Like I said, that one December, Sophia ends up showing up. Like, I, I enjoy the holidays. <laughs> but every time you have that sense of, this is amazing, allow yourself also to have the sense that for somebody, somewhere, it's tragic. On little levels, like losing your job just before Christmas, and on large levels, like children being kidnapped to make men money as sex slaves. Both can happen at the same time. My enjoyment of the season is also the prophecy right back at me of the kind of person I'm supposed to be. So when I feel the warm, holiday, elaborate Christmas feel I receive it. I enjoy it. I'm thankful for it. And then I tell myself, I need to be this feeling for somebody who can't have it on their own. That's how we handle Christmas. And we do that while we wait for Christ's return. So we have his first coming, and then everyone realizes, but there's a second coming that's going to happen sometime in the future. So the first advent is the celebration of turning from Malachi to Matthew. The, the last Advent is going to be the celebration of turning from the book of Revelation to the new heavens and the new earth. You see that? Advent 1, you turn from Malachi to Matthew. Advent 3, the final one, you turn from the book of Revelation to the new heavens and the new earth. But there's a second Advent that happens all the time. In the first Advent, Christ is born. In the third advent, Christ will return. But in the second advent, which happens an infinite amount of times until he returns, is you have Christ always showing up in the Spirit, the scriptures, and the sacraments. Watch. First advent, you turn from Malachi to Matthew. The last advent, you turn from Revelation. To the new heavens and the new earth. And then every week we turn from Saturday to Sunday and celebrate another Advent and another Advent and another Advent because he keeps coming, and he keeps returning, and he keeps showing up, and he keeps giving us the Spirit, and he keeps giving us his table, and he keeps giving us baptism, and he keeps giving us preaching, and he keeps giving us songs, and he keeps giving us worship, and he keeps giving us himself, and he keeps giving us strength, and he keeps giving us hope, and he keeps giving us prophecy so that we can be fed until the day when he returns. And that second advent is the one that happens all of the time. It holds up the other two advents. There's the one that happened. There's the one that we're waiting for. And then there's the one that happens every single time the Spirit does anything in the earth. Christ is the reason why we wait. Christ is the one we're waiting for. And then Christ's life is the life that teaches us how to wait for Christ's life. The life of Jesus teaches us how to wait for Jesus. What does that mean? He says to his disciples, As in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man returns. Well, what does that mean? That means we should be building an ark. Because there's a flood of judgment coming. What is the ark now? It's the church. We're supposed to be building up each other as a royal priesthood, as living stones being built into a dwelling place for God. And we're going to be better than Noah. Remember, we talked about this? I ruined Noah too, for everybody. Noah was terrible. Noah didn't tell anybody to get into the ark, he was just satisfied to go into it himself. We're not going to be like that. We're convergent, we're hospitable. We're becoming a broad place because we want to get as many into this as we can. That's why the very first time you see Jesus in the gospel send people out to minister, it says he sent them out two by two. Where do we hear that? When's the last time we heard two by two? The ark. It's not ironic that Matthew would tell us that when Jesus sent his disciples out, he sent them out two by two because we're building a new one. And we're bringing people into this place. Listen, the church has been the place of more rejection than any place has been, and it stops now. This is a place where people can come and experience the presence of God. We don't ask you to change your lifestyle first. You need the church and the experience of God and the Holy Spirit and the gifts of grace to even have a chance to do that anyway. So come on in however you are. And we trust that when God shows up, what's right for your life will happen to you. And that's how we spend our time waiting. What does it say? It says that they'll beat their swords into plowshares. Well, there's only been one sword. And I close with this point there's only been one sword so far that's been beaten into a plowshare. Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus is still very much alive. He's talking. He's prophesying. And then he dies super fast. Why? Because the cross doesn't kill him. He gives up his life. To the point where Pilate says, I don't believe that he's dead. Run him through with a spear. Isaiah says, your spears and swords will be turned into plowshares. They take one a weapon of war celebrated by those who think that in physical prowess is the kind of majesty that we're supposed to have. It's not. War might be necessary, but it should also be heartbreaking. We'll talk more about that next October. They take the spear and they take this weapon of war and shove it into the life of God. And the minute that spear hits, the perfect, all-encompassing love of the Father, the one driving that spear into him says, I've made a mistake. I have killed thousands of people with that spear. But when that spear of mine that has the blood of thousands on it, hit this skin, something was cultivated in me. And I realize this man is who he said he was. The minute that spear hit the flesh of Christ, it became a gardening tool. And Eden began to happen in that person. All of a sudden, the Garden of Eden starts to get cultivated again. And it's God taking weapons of division, weapons of war, Weapons of destruction, weapons of alienation. So what does that mean for us? That means that every time we absorb evil without lashing back, the return of Christ becomes more possible. Every time we absorb evil into our flesh and embrace it with love, another sword got turned into a plowshare there's one less weapon in the earth than there was before. See, Jesus didn't take their weapons away. He just showed them that they're useless. They don't do what you think they do anymore. So how do we receive hurt and injustice? We absorb it. Love covers a multitude of sins. And every time we do that, the world around us actually starts to see that hope of Christ's return become a little bit more probable. Listen, what does the Bible say? The judgment has to begin in the house of God. If we're vindictive, if we're all about ourselves, let me even say this, if our own devotional life, every, most, I say every because I'm Italian and dramatic, most devotional books that are out there are all about you. Somebody sent me one and said, what do you think of this devotional? And I just opened to the date we were on, and I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to count how many times this devotional says you, and I want you to count how many times it says Jesus. And I think I remember this pretty well. Something like 26 yous and one Jesus. And I said, who is this devotional about? I don't need to hear more about me. My ego does that just fine. I need to hear more about Jesus like ASAP yesterday, now. Even our devotional life becomes indulgent because we're always praying about our struggle, my trial, my finances, my sickness, my this, my that, and we walk away feeling pious because at least I prayed, at least I went to my Bible, at least I looked up verses on anger, at least I looked up verses on lust. Here's what we do. You worry about me and your devotional life, and I'll worry about you and mine. And then we're giving offerings. <laughs> We have to become about the other. God's life is the life of Christ, and the life of Christ is an other-facing life. Evelyn Underhill, uh, she wrote about like the early 1900s. She said this. We have to remember that the answer to the prayer, meaning come Lord Jesus, was not a new and wonderful world order, but Bethlehem and the cross, a life of complete surrender to God's will, and we must expect this answer to be worked out in our own lives in terms of humility and sacrifice. In the cross, we can turn, as Bishop Q said last week, competition into communion. And that is hastening the coming of the Lord. So what do I want us to celebrate this week as we celebrate the first week of Advent? I want us all to pay attention to the Spirit's work in our lives when it comes to waiting Anything you're waiting for, don't over-spiritualize it. I just talked in the biggest possible pictures, but you might be waiting in traffic. You might be waiting for somebody to cross the street. You might be waiting for your fast food, which has now taken seven minutes, and now for us, that's an eternity. <laughs> I've gotten mad at the gas station because it doesn't, like when I start squeezing the nozzle, the gas doesn't come out fast enough for me anymore. If the gas tank could talk, it would be like, I'm sending a signal to outer space and back. Can you wait for two seconds for, nope, I can't. Whatever you're waiting, don't just get through the waiting in the moment. Whenever you realize this week that you're waiting, whenever your consciousness takes awareness that, oh, I'm, in a, I'm, I'm waiting right now. In that moment, say, Lord, what are you expanding in me? How is this making me more hospitable? How is this making me a person who can contain other people? Let's stand to our feet this morning. And just in case, as we said on Wednesday night, just in case uh, the sermon sucks, we say the creed, which is the best sermon of all time anyway. This is why it comes directly after the sermon. Let's confess together and with Christians all around the world right now And hats and socks and stuff in it. Way back in the day, when the church would get ready to come to the Lord's table, there would be a processional. You'd bring the bread and you'd bring the cup and you'd bring it down. And what happens is, you just put it right on the ground. I mean, on the ground so it doesn't spill. They would bring the bread and the cup down because before you receive the bread and the cup as God's body and blood, you offer it to him. It comes from us. Like, we take it, and then we offer it to him, and then he gives it back. And like we always say, when the boy who gave Jesus a few loaves of bread and a few fish got them back, what was only able to feed him now feeds a lot more. They would also bring clothing for the poor to the table as well. So santa who works with our salem missions department she's been doing a lot of really good work at hedgewood an adult assisted living center right they are our neighbor and they're starting to know that there's a body of christ that cares about them that is actually their neighbor and they said we we need we just need basic clothing items like socks and underwear and stuff like that and so santa said you know do you want to take an offering i said no we do that a lot i want to i just want to buy a whole bunch of stuff and i want to send it to them find out how much they need we bought everything they needed And I think it's important that we acknowledge that when we come to the table, we offer God this bread and this cup as an expression of us offering him all of ourselves. So we say something like this, the Lord be with you. And then we say, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We lift up our hearts because we offer our heart with the bread. And we offer our heart with the cup because when we get it back, God has done something to it but we also offer clothing for the poor. So could you all just kind of extend your hands because I do believe in a little bit of mysticism. If Peter can pray for a handkerchief, we could pray for some socks. There is no amount of giving to the poor that will cure homelessness. There is no amount of food that we can give that will cure poverty, but everything the church gives is an expression that one day a world is coming where you will no longer be cold and you will no longer be hungry. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you descend on this bread and this cup and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. But we also pray that you fall on these clothes and that you would somehow anoint the act of giving for everyone at Hedgewood and they would know there is a God who, even though he seems absent, is very present. That the church is here for them and not against them and that we will do our very best to supply what they need according to the riches that God has given us in his glory. Holy Spirit, I pray that you not only fall on the bread and cup, not only on these clothes, but I pray that you fall on all these broken pieces that are standing in front of me right now. Unify us in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so that we might serve you in unity, constancy, and peace, and at the last day, rejoice to be counted worthy to enter your kingdom. I pray that as this bread and cup have become food for our journey, that we would become food for the world's journey when we leave here today. In your name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.